Yet you left. Yet you left the gates of angels. Came to seek and save the lost. And exchanged the joy of heaven for the anguish of the cross. With the bread you fed the hungry. With the word you spilled the sea. You may be seated. So since this is the weekend that we are confirming our new budget that goes into effect April 1st, and since we speak about giving far less than Jesus did, I'm going to do what I'm calling a 10-minute micro-sermon on biblical giving right now before we continue the service and before I preach Ephesians a bit later. I just want to say, may its briefness not downgrade its importance. Uh, Jesus spoke about giving often, and he said it was a reflection of where your heart is at. And I just want to say, as a church, your giving has reflected uh, very joyful, generous hearts that are changed by the gospel. And there's a card that hopefully you received when you came in today that just has biblical giving at the top. And this is basically what I'm going to go over, but I wanted you to be able to take it and digest it later as well. I think it's easy to assume that, that people know all about biblical giving, but there are new believers among us that have not been taught how to give. There are new people at Grace. Maybe they haven't been taught accurately, but all believers need to be reminded, and therefore a brief sermon before the sermon, if you will. The main idea is at the bottom of that little card, and it's a long sentence I came up with, that goes like this. Every believer should give regularly out of a heart that has been changed by the gospel, cheerfully giving generously to the Lord's work, knowing the Lord is the giver of every good and perfect gift, to the praise of his glorious grace in Christ. This is part of our worship. Giving is part of our worship. So I just want to break down that long sentence in four ways. First, every believer should give generously. In Acts 20, verse 35, we see Jesus being quoted, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul told them, set aside on the first day of the week what you're going to give so that no offerings would be taken when I come. He's speaking to churches that were uh, collecting funds to help other fellow churches. But every believer should give regularly. Secondly, every believer should give regularly out of a heart changed by the gospel. It's interesting that in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul was reminding them, look, you committed to give, and now you need to fulfill your commitment. People are counting on what you're going to give. And in verse 9, 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, he said this. He anchored it in the gospel. He said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And he's giving them a spiritual reality, but that is to flow out then into the way they gave. So we give at a heart that is changed by the gospel, and it's like Paul told the Philippians, Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He was saying that to people who had given generously. Like, you don't have to worry. You, you might go without here, but you have an eternal reward. Trust God to provide your needs just like he provided for your needs, most importantly, in the gospel. So every believer should give generously, regularly, out of a heart changed by the gospel. And then thirdly, cheerfully giving generously to the Lord's work. And here's where we come to a passage we often go to when we think about giving. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So the idea is that you need to decide what you're going to give, purpose it in your heart, decide something, I'm going to do this, bring it forth, bring it forward, make a commitment, but don't do it grudgingly. Like, well, I have to do it. Or, you know, I don't really want to do it and it causes me grief and sorrow and pain and I don't really want to, but I will. Or under compulsion, where you're being forced to do it. That word literally for under compulsion means to press someone in and, and compress something and force them to do something the way you want. So don't do it forced. And, and this isn't pay to play, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount. It was don't give with blaring trumpets. Don't make a big deal. Let your, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is giving. I remember once, a long, long time ago, I saw a pastor do this. And I made a mental note. I said, don't ever do that. What did he do? Well, they were having a campaign to give. And this guy got up and he made a really big show of the fact that he and his wife were giving the very first check. And it was very dramatic. And it was very, I don't know how much it was for, but it must have been for a lot because he made a big deal about it. But there weren't trumpets, but almost. We need to be cheerful. We need to be glad to give. We have a heart changed by grace, impacted by the mercy of God in Christ. And so then we give graciously. God is able to make all grace abound. So don't say, oh, I won't have enough for other things if I give generously. I won't have enough for all my goodies and toys. You know, God is able to make all grace abound to you and provide for your needs. Trust him. And make sure that there's no quiet pride when you give. Wow, I gave so generously. There's an interesting place, and I want to ask you to read it later this afternoon, maybe, in Exodus 36, verses 1 to 7. And it's one of those things where you're like, wow, that would be awesome if this happened every time. So in Exodus 36, they are taking the offering uh, to, to uh, finish the temple up. And literally, Moses had to tell them, stop giving. You've given enough. We have more than enough. It was for a special project. But they had everything sufficient to do all the work and more. So, wow, they were told, stop giving. Wouldn't that be great if we come up and say, stop giving? We have enough. Now, you give very generously, but I would just say that you, may, you must give when your heart is stirred. And make a free will offering voluntarily with joy. First Chronicles 29, verse 9. They gave willingly, happily. In fact, it says they were very happy to give. So every believer should give regularly, out of a heart changed by the gospel, cheerfully giving generously to the Lord's work, and then fourth and lastly, knowing, knowing something, knowing that the Lord is the giver of every good and perfect gift, that everything you and I have is from the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul told them, what do you have that you did not receive? 
And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it, like it came from you or something? God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So every believer needs to give regularly out of a heart that has been changed by the gospel, cheerfully giving generously to the Lord's work, knowing the Lord is the giver of every good and perfect gift, all to praise his glorious grace in Christ. This is part of our worship. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you and praise you for the generosity of this congregation. And thank you, Lord, that you, you inspire us to give out of a heart changed by the gospel. And you inspire us to give generously to your work, knowing that, Lord, we acknowledge you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so we praise your glorious grace in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mike. This morning, Pastor Mike will be preaching from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, and uh, I'll ask you to turn there. We'll read that in just a moment. Um, After we read that passage, uh, we're going to uh, pray for our time together, and we want to remember uh, this morning in particular Brittany Livesey, who serves in the El Medina Park Ministry, and uh, we have supported her for a while in doing that, and uh, just lift her up before the Lord in that ministry. So I'd ask you to stand, if you are able, as we read God's inspired word, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. I am going to warn you, don't panic um, after I read. I'm going to have you remain standing while I pray, Um, but uh, we will come before the Lord now and, and hear his word. Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And Lord, we come before you this morning and recognize that your glory fills the earth. God, that all of creation proclaims you. God, that we are, as your creation, living in your world that you have spoken into existence. God, we know that your invisible attributes, your eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in all that you've made and that we are without excuse, and yet we do go our own way. And even though, God, we we can know you through what you have made and recognize that you are the creator and we are but the creation, so often we wander and don't honor you as God, or give thanks. God, we become foolish in our thinking and our hearts are darkened. God, we suppress the truth that is so evident and abundant around us. God, we want to be kings of our own lives and sit on the throne and We want to rob you of the glory that is due to you, of the worship that is due to you, of the obedience that is due to you. And yet, God, we we fail even in that to recognize that it is in the worship of you and obedience of you and the making much of you that our greatest joy is to be found. But we can wander from that and be blind to that reality. But God, we know the greatness of the gospel, the gospel that is the power of God to salvation, that opens blind eyes and brings dead hearts to life. And so, God, we give you praise and thanksgiving for the power of your gospel. God, we want to have hearts that are fully open to your truth and to the reality of who you are. God, we want to weep over the things that cause you to weep, and we want to rejoice over the things that cause you to rejoice. We want to make much of who you are and of your kingship. We want to remove ourselves from the thrones of our lives and to let Jesus reign. God, he is our king and he is the one whom we adore and who we owe all to. God, our lives are intertwined and wrapped up in who Jesus is for those who 
are called according to your purpose. And so, God, give us hearts that magnify Jesus. Give us minds that are set on your truth. And let our wills be conformed to yours, that we may know the joy of pursuing you with everything in us. God, thank you for Brittany and her desire to proclaim Jesus in El Medina. God, would you give fruit to that ministry? Let people come to know you, to know the saving power of the gospel, and that lives would be transformed through what only you can do. And so we commit Brittany to you and her ministry to you. We commit this service to you and pray that your name would be exalted. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us in singing the glorious Christ, the radiance of the Father. Oh.
We sing these songs of victory um, as we behold you um, forever. And we look forward to that day. We thank you for the gospel that allows us entrance to your throne and to uh, come boldly before you with our needs and our requests and uh, most importantly, our desire to be holy like you are holy. We thank you for the day when you lead us out of the halls of Pharaoh who says, 
who is this Yahweh that I should worship him? And when instead we join uh, the innumerable crowd of angels and saints and elders saying, who is like Yahweh our God? Um, and we will worship you forever. And we thank you for that day. And until then, we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we will take two verses in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which tells us of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a message entitled, Sealed with the Promised Holy Spirit, Guarantee of Our Inheritance. On April 29, 1937, Virginia Woolf began an episode of the BBC series, Words, Words Fail Me, with these words. Words are full of echoes, of memories, of associations, naturally. They have been put out and about, on people's lips, in their houses, in the streets, in the fields, for so many centuries. And one of the chief difficulties in writing them today, they are so stored with meanings, memories. They have contracted so many famous marriages. It's tough to speak words because people have all sorts of meanings they have put on those words. And the Holy Spirit had Paul use words pregnant with meaning to describe spiritual realities. By God's providence, we have God's word in our language before us. And sometimes the Bible uses words that we have slightly different meanings for, such as elect or sealed. The biblical meaning requires our understanding to bend so that we would not force meanings that God did not intend. Sometimes, sometimes far too often, people say, unnecessary and unhelpful, misleading things about the Spirit of God. A man once told me that he didn't believe that the Holy Spirit is God. He denied that God is triune. He went to Grace Church. Some claim to be Bible-believing yet push inaccurate ideas and misquote or mangle or malign the Word of God. Yet we seek to understand the author's original intent in giving these words, understand the meaning that God intends us to get, that we aim to hold Scripture and handle it how Jesus and the apostles did. Words matter, that grammar matters, that real events happened, and we take it in context. God's Word is our authority, and so we see what it says and keep going back to it to see what it says, and see the glory of God in Christ in the Word of God. You think of those early Christians, you think of the Ephesian Christians, their souls were being bombarded by pagan, mystical, magic, and idolatry. And what they needed was bedrock, biblical, indicative truth to bolster their souls before hearing the imperative commands of how to live it, how to live it out. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, which I've mentioned in the original language in the Greek is all one long sentence, it tells us something. It tells us something very significant. It tells us that God the Father chose us, that God the Son redeemed us, and God the Spirit assures us in Christ. This is truth about believers. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus today, you know it's not about you. But there are repeated themes. In love, he predestined us. And then again, predestined according to his plan and the pleasure of his will and the counsel of his will and the praise of his glory three times. Verse 3 starts, Blessed be God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing, literally every blessing of the Spirit of God, from the Spirit of God, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, previously predestined to adoption, to the praise of his glory, that we were forgiven, that we were redeemed from slavery to sin, and that God revealed his will and is working toward his ultimate goal to sum up all things in Christ. And then we saw most recently in verses 11 and 12, we are God's possession, predestined to possess 
the inheritance, eternal life to his praise. That in Christ we were made an inheritance and we receive an inheritance. It's future and it's sure to happen. That that inheritance is imperishable. It is incorruptible. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for us, as 1 Peter chapter 1 says. Today, we look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It closes off this long sentence that is verses 3 to 14, and we get more glorious assurance. More glorious assurance is given, more abundant grace generously given to us in the idea that God seals every believer with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. Now we have to figure out what is a seal and how, how good is that guarantee? Is the seal like that plastic seal that we wrap steaks in before we put them in the freezer? Is it, is it like a seal on a jar of pickles that's hard to open? And what about the guarantee? How, how good is it? Is it like the warranty where it's a lifetime warranty until you go and show them what, what broke and they're like, not in your lifetime. You didn't read all the exclusions. You didn't read the fine print. And what this, these two verses give us are three truths regarding salvation that the Holy Spirit brings about. Things that are bedrock biblical truth for us as we live in a world not so unlike the world of Ephesus in the first century. What we see in this, in this two short verses that cap off a much longer section is the reality of salvation, the certainty of salvation, and the guarantee of salvation. The reality, the certainty, and the guarantee. Look with me first at the reality of salvation. And it's in verse 13. And the idea is you must hear and believe. You must hear the gospel and believe it. Verse 13 says, if you look there, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. In him. Christ, again, is central in God's saving acts. The prominent recurring theme. In Christ, in him, before him, his grace, his glory. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit calls the word of truth the gospel of our salvation. He calls the gospel the word of truth. And the Christian knows the truth in the word of truth. That knows all that he has comes through the word of God. That God does this work in us by means of his word. God calls the gospel the word of truth. That coming to Jesus is coming to the truth. He who is the way and the truth and the life. He who said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Good news proclaimed and heard. But it is not good news to be told, you know, as an unbeliever, you need to worship God and please God. That's not good news. Good news is to be told of what God has done for you in Christ. That Jesus died in your place at the cross. He shed his blood. He was buried. He raised on the third day. He's ascended to the Father. He's promised to return. That's the gospel. When you heard the word of truth and believed in him, not everyone believed, but the good news was accepted. The good news is accepted by believers. And you notice it's when you believed, at the time you believed, and you gotta put a marker on that and remember that when we talk about the sealing, the sealing of the Holy Spirit happened at the moment you believed. That we hear and believe, we receive God's grace by the Spirit through the word of God. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. There's a passage in 1 Peter that fleshes this out quite nicely. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll begin at 22 and then we'll go on into chapter 2 for a few verses. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Those that are saved love Jesus and love their fellow Christians. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he launches in and quotes Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
See the tie-in to Ephesians 1? That you believed, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and belief. This word is the good news that was preached to you. And go on into chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, quoting the psalmist in Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Believe it. Hits the bullseye, by the way. That's the bullseye. The focus is on God's work in Christ. The focus is on God's initiative in planning and ordaining and carrying out our redemption. All the verses we've read so far, that's what it's been about. That God in grace gave us new life in his son. And so when you read verses 3 to to 12, you say, well, from God's perspective, it was according to his sovereign purpose. We were chosen, we were predestined, we were adopted, we were redeemed. And it's important to know that beforehand. But from our vantage point, what our eyes see is we believe. We know. We believe. When you heard the message of truth and believed in him, you have side by side God's sovereignty and man's accountability with no conflict. God sovereignly works. We respond in faith. God regenerates you and you believe. Ephesians 2 says that. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And God made us alive. You're going to give an account for your response to Jesus. People receive salvation when they hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. A response is required. The invited must respond. It will either be yes or no. You must hear and believe. Let's talk about believing the gospel. Think with me for a moment. There are a lot of things in life that can give you an experience. They can make you feel happy. They can, they can even lead you to do something good. Colts and clubs can accomplish that. Colts and clubs can give you an experience and make you feel happy and lead you to do something good. But the message delivered to the apostles and delivered to us is, is what the Christian believes. The Christian depends entirely, solely, 100% on the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. If someone is godless and they don't care and they live in sin and they think, you know, I need some religion. It'll make me a better person. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. I'll try to worship. I'll try to serve God. They might feel better. But they're religious now. They're not a Christian. That person's not a Christian. Trying to be good and look good, that's like the Old Testament Jews. Tried to please God, keep his commandments, do the sacrifices. It's like the New Testament Pharisees. Fast twice a week, give 10% to the poor, worship God how they think they should. They weren't Christians. They were outright opponents of Jesus. Apart from Christ... We are all under God's wrath. And you might say, but wait, what about our free will? Oh, God gave us a will, and it's free to do whatever you want to do right now. And your will is infected by sin from the start, and your will is free to do whatever you want and desire, and you will not want or desire Jesus unless and until he opens your heart to him. Your will is not free to choose Christ unless and until God grants you life. If you're merely seeking a happy feeling, an experience, you're in danger of eternal punishment. You're condemned by God's law. You're under his just wrath. You need to be delivered from the wrath to come. The gospel tells us we're only reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. The good news, God did what was necessary. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you need to realize your sinful condition and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone and bring no good works that you generated. Only believe in the finished work of Christ. You must hear and believe. And, and then those who hear and believe you know what we do? We go and proclaim. We receive the truth and then we give the truth. So we need to talk about preaching the gospel. 
God's heirs exist now to praise his glory, and God's glory in the gospel must be preached and proclaimed and heralded. Yet get up, get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Get on a rooftop, get on your platform, preach it, proclaim it, proclaim it boldly. Proclaim salvation due to what Jesus has done. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Don't, don't simply exhort people to, to worship God or live a better life or seek some kind of experience. Do the work of an evangelist. Ordinary Christians in, in Acts went everywhere preaching the word, Acts 8.4. Declare God's praises to the nations that are not worshiping him. Call all nations to praise him because the glorious character of God is revealed in us, will shine out through us as we call the universe to praise God. As 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, we have the mind of Christ. We have the word of truth. And in Isaiah 48, 40 verse 8, that was quoted in 1 Peter, grass and flowers wilt and wither, but God's powerful word stands forever. It's not budging. Don't be afraid to speak the full counsel of God. Don't be afraid to speak everything profitable that will build people up. Paul told the Corinthians, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. James said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Believer, if you are believing the word of truth today, you know what that means? You know how good that is? That means if you're believing the word of truth, you are rejecting all lies. The devil is a liar, the deceiver, the father of lies. And you're going to hear things that sound good, and you're going to be tempted to adopt them. You might already have adopted them. You need to dive back into the word of truth. Get your mind cleansed from lies. The lie that tells you, oh, you can have it all, and you can get what you want. And God says, you just fill your goodie basket with everything you want, and you realize that does not satisfy. It shreds your soul is what it does. The reality of salvation is you must hear and believe. And then those who have received the good word of God then give it out freely. Secondly, we see the certainty of salvation. The certainty, in, still in verse 13, God owns and indwells you. That's the certainty. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit that tells you and I that God owns and indwells us. In the, Old Test, in the New Testament, excuse me, in sealing uh, was used in various ways, closing up an enclosure, rolling up a scroll, uh, being protected from harm, uh, a mark of ownership, or to authenticate something. And here, sealing could mean providing protection from evil and harmful spirits. The seal of the Spirit, protecting from evil or the temptation to rely on magic. That's the, that was the context in Ephesians. They were flooded with this reliance on magical powers, that, would, that could explain Paul's concern. Believers share Christ's position of, of heavenly authority over the powers. But in this context here, it's best to see the seal as a certification of the reality of salvation, that it is a mark of God's ownership over the believer and then the authenticity of the believer, that he owns and indwells the believer that it indicates ownership and the reality and validity of the contents, the authenticity. Now, this word sealed was used for cattle and slaves. They were branded by owners to guard property from theft. It was an external seal. Ours is internal. God puts his seal in our hearts. You'll notice that we are sealed with the Spirit, not by the Spirit, who seals us, the Father, verse 3 tells us, and the Father is the subject of the main verbs in verses 3 to 14. The Father did the sealing. The guarantee of our inheritance, verse 14, the sealing then certifies the reality of salvation. You've received the promised Holy Spirit, and you know without a doubt God gives salvation to all who come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. And, and we share Abraham's faith. Abraham, the believer, believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. The sealing here is receiving the Spirit through faith. That faith is required for the sealing of the Spirit. 
that the Spirit gives faith to the believer as a gift, the Spirit that was promised. The Holy Spirit was promised. The new covenant was foretold. The prophets and Jesus told of the day in which the Spirit would be sent. Sending of the Holy Spirit took place on the day of Pentecost. It was a unique event in redemptive history. It was like creation and the incarnation. It happened once. No previous event rivaled it. Nothing future surpasses it. Christ assumed a human nature, never again to lay it down, and the Spirit chose the church as his dwelling place and his temple, never to be separated. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God in Christ. And the Scripture shows the unique significance of Pentecost. It was an outpouring or even shedding of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel spoke of it. Ezekiel 36. A new spirit, God says, I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to be careful to obey my rules. In Joel 2, God says, I will pour out my spirit. It was begun on the first advent of the Messiah when he came and given to believers through the Holy Spirit. That's why on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up, stood up boldly and authoritatively and Christ-centeredly preached. And Acts 2.32 tells us, he says, Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and he has poured out what you both see and hear. Jesus spoke of sending the Spirit in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. He says, it is for your benefit that I go away, because if I do not go away, the counselor will not come. If I go away, I will send him to you, John 16, 7. He said in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. And he didn't. How encouraging. First thing Jesus did after his exaltation to the right hand of the Father is send the Spirit. The spirit he gives proceeds from the Father, given to him by the Father, and then was given to the church. The promised Holy Spirit. And the promised Holy Spirit seals the believer and then sends the preacher and convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment and saves and seals and sanctifies. The Spirit of God, the Spirit as the seal, is the fulfillment of the promise of the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Spoken of in Isaiah 32, when the Spirit would be poured out upon us from on high. In Isaiah 44, I will pour out my Spirit upon your offspring, my blessing upon your descendants. Those who would receive the inheritance. Confirmed in believers through the Spirit, leading to redemption and sealing for a future day of adoption, the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit brings the new creation. He fulfilled the promise. The victorious Messiah gives the Spirit as part of his victory on the cross. God seals the believer, says, mine, owned by God and really saved. You're for reals. Are you for reals? Yeah, I'm for reals in Jesus. God's mark, his sign, his insignia, his logo, his proof, his, his validity is what Paul was praying for the Ephesians. Paul was praying in, in Ephesians 3 that they would be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. They would know the spirit of God dwells in them. In Romans 8 verse 9 it tells us if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he does not belong to him. Romans 8.16, speaking of what the Spirit does with the Word of God and, and assuring us, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We are God's children. Believer, if God has put his mark of ownership on you, you are his. Don't let anyone or anything live rent-free in your soul, in your heart, or in your life, because it will cost you, and it might cost you your soul. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. You need to know that, and you need to relax. You need to say, all is well and will be well. In Christ, I have assurance. I have peace. God has sealed me, owns me, indwells me, will keep me, protects me, and will preserve me until that day. Remember that and rest in Christ. Remember that and rest your weary soul in Christ. 
The reality of salvation is that we must hear and believe, and the certainty of salvation is that God owns and indwells the believer. And then we come to verse 14, and we see the guarantee of salvation, that God assures and empowers you. Look at verse 14. Put your eyes on those words. It says, the Holy Spirit, who is the, in- the guarantee of our inheritance, who is, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He is the guarantee. What does that mean? It means he's the down payment. He's the pledge. He's the deposit. He, the guarantee that the full amount will be paid. This is the first installment. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That believers possess by faith the down payment of our inheritance to be fully enjoyed in the future. There's like a down payment on a house. You might give 15 or 20%. I don't know how much of the Holy Spirit uh, is given as the down payment. God gives just enough of, this, of the experience of the true, full reality that we will experience in heaven so that we would know. Enough that you know. But God doesn't just tell you something that will happen in the future. God brings the future into the present so that you may taste the future. And believers are tasting the future now. And you'll notice the guarantee is until we acquire possession of it. Don't need a guarantee when you have it all. It's not like the, the insurance where the loopholes are all built in and multiple exclusions. Your claims won't be denied. The Spirit is the guarantee of our final inheritance. The first installment or down payment will just taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Dive back into the Word and see. Sample the real thing. The down payment is a bit of heaven now so that you can see what really matters. So when you get enticed by the world, you'll reject it in favor of your heavenly home. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is with believers. The Holy Spirit will be with you forever, believer, in the, and, and in the fullest way possible. And until then, you have strength to live the life that God intends because you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Rejoice then. Rejoice in that and serve the Lord. Serve the Lord freely. Serve the Lord with gladness. With gladness. Serve any way you want. Praise God and then go do the next great thing, the next good thing, the next noteworthy thing. If you're asking God to lead you, then you should assume as a believer, and if it's not illegal or immoral, that he is leading you and don't be so worried and just go and serve the Lord. The Spirit is the guarantee of a glorious inheritance. We have inheritance in Christ. The Spirit glorifies Christ. Apart from, apart from Christ, our future would be tragic. Not hopeful. Do you have the guarantee? The Christian puts his hope in the Lord Jesus. When you look at your past and you realize, wow, Jesus forgave me of all of that. Gave me peace. My sins were put on Jesus at the cross. Jesus carried my sins. Jesus gives me confidence and hope. And then you realize in that moment, wow, I need Jesus every moment. Do you have Christ? Is Christ the root of all your hope and faith? If not, you cannot say you're a Christian. If you can say my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, you're saved. When you read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, does it leave you cold? Worry then. If you read it and rejoice and say, look, look what God did, be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad and praise God for his glorious grace. Repeated three times in this passage from 3 to 14, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. Salvation accomplished in Christ to the praise of his glory. All for his glory. That abundant grace leads us to abundant praise. How often are we praying just asking for things? How often are we praying just adoring God? The abundant grace should lead us to abundant praise. We need to adore God. You need to memorize Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. 
You need to memorize it and recite it to your soul and your household and whoever will listen often. It's, It's bedrock biblical truth that you need before you walk out your door every morning. God seals every believer with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance, that we can know the reality of that as we hear the word and believe the word and and we can know the certainty. God owns me. God indwells me. And there's a guarantee. There's a guarantee God assures me of and then gives me power to live. I can receive the truth. I can give the truth. I can remember it. I can rest in Christ. I can rejoice in him and I can serve him without fear. And I am just so glad that that the Holy Spirit had Paul use words to describe these spiritual realities. I'm so glad. By God's providence, we have God's word in our language. We can see it. We can understand it. We can see the glory of God in the gospel. We can praise his glory. And and the, the only thing left for us to do is just join in the worship. Just join in the worship. Wow, God the Father chose me. God the Son redeemed me. And God the Spirit assures me. I want to worship the triune God. You know, you were made to praise him. You were made to praise him. Your heart will not be satisfied until you praise him. It is the foundation of all the Christian life and all of the letter of Ephesians to follow. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we are possessed by you and as believers and possessing of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that even by your providence we have the word of God to give us these assurances and the spirit of God to impress them upon our hearts such that we would not reject them but that we would rejoice in them. And thank you, Lord, that we were made to praise you. May we praise you in a really good way today as we think, as we speak, as we live all for your glory in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and join as we close singing to you be the glory.
All right, a few announcements before we go. Uh, today we have a membership class. If you're interested in becoming a member at Grace Church, it'll be today uh, after third service, 12.30 p.m. in A1. Lunch is provided. Also, we're confirming the budget this weekend. If you're a, a member of the church 18 or over, you already received an email about that. This Thursday, we have a special men's leadership training for any man who aspires to learn and grow in preparing and to present the Word of God. I'll be teaching that at 645 in the NPR. And also keep praying for our missions trips that are ongoing or will be going. I like to call those going to learn from and help friends anywhere God sends us. And then we have midweek this, this week, and uh, love to have you come to it. Then in two Wednesdays on the 5th of April, we have our turkey team of Alan Weisenberger and Dan Martin and Paul Shibley will be sharing about their turkey trip that, that recently got back from. So remember to invite people to Easter, Palm Sunday, and uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and that's coming up soon. All right, to close, we'll be in Jude 24 and 25, and then I'll pray. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that we can experience your power and see your preeminence and praise you for it. In the gospel and in our lives, we pray, Lord, that you would empower us to serve you with joy today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, 